This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This Is Democracy. This week, uh, we have a wonderful opportunity to talk to two of the leading philosophers in our country who have written a really wonderful and timely book on a topic that I know we all think about, which is how we can get past some of the very difficult and pig-headed thinking in our society and move towards a more open approach to issues, a more evidence-based approach to issues, a more logical approach to the issues. Democracy at some level is uh, hinged upon rationality and attention to evidence. We have challenges around those issues today in our society. These are not new challenges. These have been old historical challenges. They seem to have reached a recent peak in our current time. Stephen Nadler and Lauren Shapiro, our two guests, have written a really wonderful book that addresses these issues and helps us think through how we can be better thinkers in our democracy. The book is called When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, How Philosophy Can Save Us uh, from Ourselves. Steve and Larry, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having us, Jeremy. Pleasure to be here. It's a real pleasure to have you on, Stephen and Larry are old friends from Madison as well. Um, Steve Stephen Nadler is a Vilas Research Professor and the William H. Hay II Professor of Philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's written by my count seven books before this one. Uh, I, I'm a historian, so I'm sometimes challenged in my counting, but I think I counted that accurately. A number of books that I have really enjoyed of his that I have read carefully or at least read into. Rembrandt's Jews, uh, which was published in 2003 and a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And if you're a fan of uh, Rembrandt, this is a book you have to read. If you're interested in Jewish history, this is a book you have to read. He also wrote The Philosopher, the Priest, and the Painter, A Portrait of Descartes. Uh, Steve made Descartes interesting for me, which I thought was impossible. Um, (laughs) And then A Book Forged in Hell, Spinoza's Scandalous Treaties and the Birth of the Secular Age. And of course, as I said, he's a co-author on uh, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People. Lauren Shapiro uh, is the Berendt Entz Professor of Philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he was the chair of that department uh, for some time. He's also written uh, numerous books by my count, six, um, including, and I'm sure I've missed some, The Mind Incarnate, published in 2004. Uh, embodied cognition. We were just actually talking about uh, these issues a few minutes ago. And a really fascinating uh, sounding book, The Miracle Myth, Why Belief in the Resurrection and the Supernatural is Unjustified. That, that I think, justifies another podcast episode at some point. Uh, again, let's Larry, do let's do it. Again, Larry and Steve, thank you for joining us. Before we turn to our discussion with our two eminent philosophers, we have, of course, our uh, scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Zachary, what's the title of your poem this week? Well, today's poem is is really a a song in uh, a, a a a song lyric. Um, oh, are you going to do acoustic today? Uh, no, <laughs> no. And the title is "The Apparition." Let's hear it. In a time of aging inability, I walked from store to store, picking up the remnants of civility from the dirty, unmopped floor. You approached me on a subway vent and asked me to repent, but you know just as well as I that these days ain't heaven sent. Oh, sing to me of truthfulness, 
I've known it to come and go. Oh, sing to me of innocence. It's been swaying to and fro. I've been waiting for the apparition in a cabin in the trees. I've been waiting for the abolition with the songbirds and the bees. These cannot be the pillars of your promised land, just a speck of dust in a million grains of sand. No wise man was ever so humble, so deflated, in his false memory of decency prorated. You came forward in a parking lot and asked for what's left of me. You came to me with jumper cables and wanted a battery, but I tell you, it ain't free. Oh, sing to me of truthfulness, I've known it to come and go. Oh, sing to me of innocence, it's been swaying to and fro. I've been waiting for the apparition in a cabin in the trees. I've been waiting for the abolition with the songbirds and the bees. That's beautiful, Zachary. What is your song about? Well, I think this song is really about uh, the the emotional um, distress of living in an age when, when, when truth and 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 innocence seem like words that 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 are that are unrealistic, right? When mm-hmm. when we don't seem to to be able to agree on on a basis of truth or or a basis of morality, and you find this anxiety ridden, exactly. Steve, um, does this in somehow re- somehow relate to why and how you and Larry wrote this book? It, it certainly does, um, especially since you brought up the issue of anxiety. Um, this is not a book that either of us ever imagined we'd be writing. Uh, I work mainly in 17th century philosophy, and Larry works mainly in uh, philosophy of mind and philosophy of cognitive science. But over the last four or five years, um, our concern, our anxiety, our fears have grown um, with the spread of irrational beliefs and the um, really uh, dangerous actions that have followed from them. Watching the storming of the Capitol on January 6th and just surviving the four years of the Trump presidency, um, we thought that as philosophers, um, the least we can do and perhaps the most we could do was to put philosophy to work and try to um, illuminate um, what's going on, uh, which, you know, we, we like to call it a kind of pandemic, not, of course, the, the COVID pandemic, but something more insidious and pervasive, which is a pandemic of irrationality and bad thinking, which just exacerbates the dangers of the, uh, of the viral pandemic. And, and Larry, why is that? Why, why do you see this as a moment perhaps worse than others? You, you, you both have you know, seen different times in our society. Why, why this moment now? Well, it, it does seem like the world is facing cataclysms of a sort that it hasn't for a very long time. We have a, a plague that's decimating uh, our economy and it's it's a plague that that doesn't have to have the severe consequences that it does. It's it's because of human failures that we're seeing the spread of COVID. Uh, if we all masked up and got vaccinated, we wouldn't be talking about the Delta variant. And we have climate change, which is already doing huge damage to uh, to our to our glaciers. To it's, it's causing the seas to rise. It's it's calling causing cities uh, to be uh, devastated by hurricanes. The, the world is in a, in a very precarious situation right now. And something has to be done to convince people to do the right thing before it's too late. And, and that was a motivation for the book. I, mean, we, I think we both agree. It's hard, not to disagree, it's hard not to agree that there's always been bad thinking. 
But with technology today, the the ability of this bad thinking to spread, especially over social media, seems a lot more dangerous than it might have been, you know, 25, 50, 100 years ago. I wanted to pick up on that precise point uh, and, and maybe uh, come back to you, Larry. One of the things that struck me uh, in the early chapters of the book uh, is the repeated word stubbornness. Uh, you, you say epistemological stubbornness, uh, stubbornness toward different kinds of information, towards contrary evidence. Uh, what do you mean by stubbornness? And, and, and diagnose the problem for us there, because this is a big part of the, the early part of your book. Well, colloquially, a, a stubborn person is simply a person who, who refuses to do something. And an epistemically stubborn person is a, a person who refuses to abandon a belief despite overwhelming evidence that that belief is false, or refuses to accept a belief despite overwhelming evidence that that, that belief is, is the, the justified belief that they should be having. They, they should be having. And so... What we're seeing in the world today is people clinging to their belief that, say, vaccines are dangerous or clinging to their belief that uh, global warming is not caused by uh, human, human activity. And there's a wealth of evidence that should be convincing these people that, that these beliefs they're holding are, are false and that other beliefs that they should be holding and they're not are, are, are true. So at the epistemically stubborn person that we're concerned with is the person who stubbornly insists on a belief despite lacking justification for holding that belief. And, and one of the really interesting distinctions you make that comes up a lot for us as historians as well, and, and I think for all those who think about the broader arc of democracy, is this distinction, Steve, you draw uh, between believing and knowing. How do we distinguish those two things? Believing is simply giving your assent to uh, a proposition or you know some kind of content. Um, you can believe that it's raining out. You can believe that Las Vegas is the capital of France. Um, simply believing something um, really does not make it true. We have lots of beliefs that are false, but we continue to believe them. And it's not irrational to believe something that's false. It's irrational to believe something that's false when you're confronted with clear evidence that it is false. Knowledge requires more than just believing something. It requires, first of all, that the belief should be true. But also we have lots of true beliefs that don't count as knowledge um, because they just might be lucky guesses. I've never been uh, to Mozambique, but right now I believe that it is sunny in Mozambique. And perhaps that belief is true. But because I have no evidence or justification for believing it, my true belief doesn't really count as knowledge. Uh, ever since Plato, uh, knowledge has been contrasted with mere opinion or belief by virtue of not just being a true belief, but a belief that the person is justified in holding. It's not just that there are reasons, good reasons in favor of the truth, but that the person has acknowledged and in a way um, um, embraced those reasons for having the belief. And then you can say you know something when you have a true belief that's also justified. It does seem like that in the past uh, few decades, we've learned more and more about our world. Why is it that as we learn more and more, as we know more and more, we seem to be believing less and less as well? Larry? Um, well, 
I'm not I'm not sure how to approach that question. You you can't know anything without believing it. So, um, so uh, l- let me rephrase for, that question. I I, I think what I yeah. what I meant to say was. Why is it that in in a world where we seem to be knowing, where we seem to be learning more and more about our world, we seem to have more of that knowledge that people are are, are less trustful of that knowledge. People are less willing to to trust that. Knowledge. Right when we should know more, why is it, why does it seem like we know less? Yeah, yeah, uh, that that's a, a great question. I wish I knew the answer to that question. I think one uh, one part of an answer to that question has to focus on the kind of insidious effects of social media and uh, conservative uh, radio and conservative television, where there, there seems to be uh, great profit in spreading uh, falsehoods. And people are confused. They're not sure what to believe because they, they have a former president of the United States who should be a revered and respected figure uh, and a promulgator of truths spilling lies. Uh, and that's confusing for people. There's also so many n- different sources of information coming at us today than there were a generation ago. And I think what's lagging is the sort of second order or meta skill to be able to assess which of these many sources of information are reliable and which are not. So with the proliferation, not just of social media, but broadcast uh, news, cable news, um, rumor, uh, and people are just simply taking all this, this information and really don't know how to assess the validity of what they're being confronted with. It, it's such. There's a, also uh, the fact. There, there, there's also the fact that uh, there's less money being spent on education today than than there has been in the past, and uh, I, have, I have a daughter who's a first grade teacher, and. Uh, uh, the, the the situations that teachers are, are expected to tolerate now for the pay that they're receiving are it's hard to get teachers who who can be dedicated uh, given the lack of funding for education. Absolutely, and and again, that's an old problem that's just been made worse as the burdens on teachers, especially with COVID, have, have certainly grown. Larry, as I'm sure your daughter knows better than than anyone. Yeah. Um, I wanted to come back to the the point that well the both of you raised and, and that Steve really put put a put a real tip on right which is that this issue about uh, the skills to work through what in some ways I think is information overload right I, I often believe and we'll get to this when we talk about wisdom right we 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 have a lot of information but actually because we have so much information it's actually hard to know things and 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 I think Steve you were alluding to this one of the reasons I picked up the book and was so excited about it is because I think you and Larry, and I haven't seen too many people, others do this, are really trying to think through what we always claim we're doing in the liberal arts, right? Providing critical thinking skills, providing the ability to work through different interpretations and come to something closer to the truth, even if it's truth, not with a capital T, but with a lowercase t, right? Uh, what what are some of those skills? Give us an overview of you know what really is the majority of the book here, Steve, but what are some of those skills that you think philosophers have at least some purchase on reminding us of? Well, one of the things I emphasize in my introduction to philosophy class is that I really don't care whether you remember what Socrates said or Descartes said. I do care if they remember what Spinoza said, but <laughs> not course. Kant. You know. and so so the, I mean, the particular views of this or that philosopher are important, but what's even more important is that the students acquire a skill both for how to read a text, and by text I mean broadly how to read a book, how to look at a picture, 
how to assess uh, or, you know, verbal information coming at them. Um, and what I mean by that is that they need to be able to understand what an argument is and how to critically assess the arguments that are coming at them, whether they're explicit arguments or in the form of propaganda. And what that means is considering what thesis is being proposed, um, what evidence or arguments or premises are being offered for that thesis, and whether, in fact, the conclusion does follow from those premises. I think that's the most basic and important philosophical skill that people, that we expect our students to get and that we would like our citizens to be able to, to have. Larry? Yeah, I, I, I'd like to add that um, across the humanities, not just in philosophy, but ac- across the humanities, in, in, in history and in, in, in literature and in, in, um, in, in, feel, in, in, in languages, people are uh, exposed to complicated texts that require serious interpretation. And in order to do this well, you need to be able to follow lines of narrative. Uh, you need to be able to think about alternative readings you need to be able to engage with difficult ideas at, at a high level. And philosophy differs from these other fields, not, not in being even more difficult. It just is that philosophers are focused and concentrate on explicit forms of reasoning. Uh, that's sort of their game. Uh, it's the kind of reasoning that you'll see people in other fields of humanities engage in. It just is Philosophers are more, are more overt about the kinds of uh, reasoning and uh, categorizing and, and cataloging these forms of reasoning. The other thing I think that distinguishes philosophers from perhaps other humanities, although I don't want to generalize here, I'm sure historians are in, philosoph- in agreement with philosophers about this, is that we still believe in something called truth. We don't, right. we don't accept the, the notion that we're in a post-truth uh, era. Uh, if we are truly in a post-truth era, then I think all is lost. Then then the people who say that there are alternative facts, uh, they've won. And I'm not willing to concede that battle yet. Hmm. Uh, it's a really important point. I, I do agree with you, but I think the pushback, Steve, would be, well, whose truth, right? And truth as it's traditionally been defined has been a very narrow, at least historically, right? There yeah. were truths about race, for example, right? And And so how do we because the post-truth argument's not just made on the right, it's sometimes made on the left, right? So how, how do we deal with that? So I think the phrase whose truth uh, is an incoherent one. Um, and it's a, it's a rhetorical strategy. Um, when there were claims made about racial inferiority, um, these were not true. Um, they were proposed as truths, but they were opinions. They were propagandistic beliefs. Um, I don't think there is this person's truth and that person's truth. So in that sense, the, the notion of whose truth to me just doesn't make sense. There are things that are true and there are things that are not true. Um, despite the fact that very often things are proposed as truths, which are not. Hmm. What, what if we don't know, Larry? You're, you're a scholar of cognition, right? There's, there's so much uncertainty. And, and I think a lot of what I liked about your book is, and this appeals to a historian, right? You, you, you talk a lot about logic and evidence, and that's the space we work in, right? But I, I do find that a lot of the issues people care about, there's perhaps more uncertainty than we're sometimes willing to admit. That's, that's right. I, I have a, a deep interest in, in science. Uh, I'm a philosopher of science broadly conceived, uh, and I'm interested in the scientific method. And I'm interested in trying to understand what science produces, what the outcomes of science are. And 
what we learn from studying science is that the the goal for truth is sometimes beyond our 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 grasp. So what we do when we're thinking about the world from the perspective of science is look for those beliefs, those hypotheses, those conclusions that have the most justification. You can have a very justified belief that still ends up false. So uh, it used to be reasonable to believe that the Earth was the center of the solar system. It used to be reasonable to believe that F equals MA. And we now know that both those beliefs, strictly speaking, are, are, are false. But there's a difference between um, a false belief and a belief that has lots of justification uh, and a belief that's true. And what, what scientists do is they, they aim at those beliefs that have the most justification. So I think you're right, Jeremy, that often truth is beyond our grasp, but that's, that shouldn't be a, a source of, uh, of, of, uh, of sorrow. Uh, what we should be aiming for are those beliefs that have the most justification. And, and one of the things I took from your book, and one of the reasons I recommend this to all of our listeners, is um, you provide one of the best descriptions in your book of what I would call the striving for truth, which is, I think, also what Steve's talking about, right? There, there are truths we might not be capable of fully grasping, um, but reading your book, it's clear to me, or it's clearer at least to me, how to distinguish between someone who's using the proper tools to try to get to truth and someone who's actually doing the opposite, which is trying to simply justify a position that pre-exists. And those are, it seems to me, your you, your book is drawing a distinction between those two activities, where one is a sophist's activity, and one is actually the philosophical pursuit for, of truth. Do I have that right? That that, that that's right. In fact, uh, when you were formulating your question, I immediately thought of, of the sophists because um, Socrates was, was accused by his detractors of, of being a sophist, where a sophist was someone who would use argument and rhetoric for purposes of, of self-interest, not because they were striving for true conclusions, but because they were striving to convince people. And convincing people is only a valuable skill if you can convince them of something that's true or well justified, and the sophist doesn't care about that part of, of argument, I wanted to turn Steve to uh, wisdom, but also before wisdom, I wanted to turn to reasonableness. Those are two other topics that come up really, really well in the book, and they're of course related to one another. Um, we we had Jonathan Marks on uh, a few months ago, and he has a book on being reasonable, also from a very different point of view, actually more from a literary philosophical point of view um what is reasonableness for you and what why why is reasonableness so important i think it uh, reasonableness can appear in, in two guises first of all there's there's a person being reasonable in the way in which we've been describing so far in the formation of their beliefs and not holding on to beliefs when the evidence points against them so you can be a reasonable person in that sense uh, but there's also a social dimension to reasonableness, and that involves uh, engaging in um, an honest conversation with others uh, in seeking to find out what may or may not be true uh, politically, socially, and in all sorts of domains. And I think in that case, what, what reasonableness means is that there's a shared set of assumptions about what you're going after. Uh, there's also a shared set of assumptions about what the best way to achieve that goal is, that there are certain rules of reasoning, 
that there are certain kinds of arguments that we will grant are valid and there are other forms that are invalid. If we don't have that sort of base um, set of agreements on the rules of the game, the rules of the knowing game and the rules of the social epistemology game, then there's really no way to get started and you can't have reasonable conversations with people. And that seems to be part of the political morass we're in, that um, both sides are talking past each other because there's very little agreement on shared assumptions. Right, right. And and it, it's important to clarify that under this, I think, very helpful definition, the practice of being reasonable doesn't mean you're necessarily moderate in your views. You could be a radical, reasonable person. Am I, am I accurate in that? That seems right. If, if you define radical in terms of the content of the belief, the, the belief might be politically radical, um, whatever that means these days. Um, but if you have good reasons for proposing it, then it's a perfectly reasonable belief for you to have. You may end up, of course, if you're being reasonable, giving up that belief in the face of an argument that you find stronger. But, right, right. But I think of abolitionists, for example, right, who were often seen as radicals, right? Lincoln himself saw abolitionists as radicals. But in some ways, you could argue they were being the most, most reasonable. If you take the very terms of uh, what discussion around humanism should have been in that time, right? Yeah, I think that's right. What about wisdom, uh, Larry? That's another you know big word that's used here that that I think is undervalued in our society. What what is wisdom? Well, part part of wisdom has to involve uh, a close attention to the sorts of principles that you allow to guide your actions. Um, so we we talk in the in the book about people who. Uh, follow rules simply because they're rules without thinking about the, the principles that might have been uh, motivating the rule in the first place. Uh, we, we have a couple of examples, like, like an example of, of uh, someone here in Madison, a, a person who worked at a school and uh, was called the N-word by a, a black student and, and, and told the student not to call him the N-word. And because the school's policy was to um, to suspend or fire anyone who used that word, uh, this this poor uh, I think it was a janitor was was fired. A security uh, guard. Security guard. Uh, and so so wisdom is in part an ability to reflect on the sorts of principles that should be guiding action and understand when exceptions to rules are are acceptable. But wisdom is also a broader kind of thing. It has to do with with a kind of epistemic humility, the, the wise person knows what he or she does not know and doesn't try to um, come to conclusions on the basis of beliefs that they have no uh, entitlement to hold. You have a very good section. I just wanted to read a few lines because this really helped me think through this term. Uh, a wise person is someone who exercises good thinking in her opinions. She knows how to come to her beliefs in a rational way, and she does not hold on to those beliefs beyond the point when the evidence counts against them. She has internalized the lessons regarding justification and good reasoning that we have examined. Um and you give some. You have a section on profiles in in, in wisdom. H how does one come to do this, Steve? It, it actually seems so rare as, as I reread this and think about our world. Yeah, it is rare. Um, it's something that takes effort, and this is why I I can keep going back and reading Plato's dialogues, where Socrates 
Um, and my students find him extremely annoying, very obnoxious. Why is he poking <laughs> these people? Um, good thing they put him to death. He deserved it. Uh, and I try to convince him that he was not doing this to be obnoxious. He was doing it um, both for his own good and their own good. He was doing it for his own good because he didn't want to live among people who were irrational and corrupt. Uh, he was doing it for their good because it's in one's own best interest to be reasonable. But as you say, it's, it's rare and it's difficult. It requires, as Larry said, th thinking about what you're doing in the light of your values and beliefs, especially your moral beliefs. Um, you don't just act haphazardly, but you think about whether what you're about to do is right or wrong. But the more difficult part is examining those values or beliefs about right and wrong in the first place. Uh, and there you really have to dig. You have to think, how did I come to believe that this is what justice is? How did I come to believe that this is what makes a right action right? And are these beliefs ones that I can defend? And that takes, um, it takes a good deal of work. And I would say it takes training in philosophy and not just mere logic, but training in ethics training in how to reflect upon your own, um, your own beliefs, your background beliefs, and the new beliefs you're being asked to accept on the background of those beliefs. Uh, and, and, I, please. and I should say, let, lest our, our project seem beyond the pale, um, our, our desire that people learn philosophy and learn from philosophy I don't. I don't think is uh, an unreasonable desire. I, I remember plenty of time spent in school in when I was seven, eight, ten years old, learning things like Greek mythology, which was nice. It was good to learn Greek mythology. But just imagine if we also spent time teaching students, young students, basics in philosophy. I, I think that'd be a, a wonderful thing that that might go some way toward fixing the world. It would make dinner conversations a lot more interesting, that's for sure, when, when kids would call out their parents for invalid arguments. <laughs> that happens in our right. household all yeah. the time, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I've noticed uh, as a student who's taken uh, a multiple philosophy courses uh, at high school and middle school in the past few years is that I think sometimes uh, f teaching philosophy at a non-collegiate level becomes how to convince people you're right instead of how to know you're right and how to find the right answer. How do we avoid, mm. how do we avoid teaching philosophy as this just survey of human knowledge instead of actually getting, and, and, and instead of actually getting people to engage with that material and, and, and those questions? Well, well, what, what, one thing that seems to be true, I, we, we have a, a, a teacher here in our high school who teaches philosophy and he, he's, he's quite good at it. I think Steve and I have both spent some time in his classroom. Um, Teachers are, are trained to teach their subject matters typically. So the, the English teacher has, has learned how to teach English and the math teacher how to teach math. But there's not, as far as I know, much uh, time or money spent on teaching teachers how to teach philosophy. So, so Zachary, maybe part of the problem was that your instructor didn't really understand what philosophy is. It's not teaching people how to be how how to convince others of anything. It's, it's reflecting on the right rules of reasoning and um, engaging with principles and, and values. Uh, so it, it's much more than it sounds like you received in, in your philosophy education. Steve? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, 
it's a shame that philosophy is not taken very seriously in this country. If you go to Europe, for example, um, philosophy is taught in the secondary level, and I think perhaps in some places in the primary level, um, and students are asked to read um, in high school, um, not just dry rules of arguing, but they read Plato, they read Kant, uh, they read Descartes, and are exposed to the broad variety of questions that philosophy asks, um, the broad variety of answers that philosophers give to those questions. And it encourages them to formulate for themselves, what do I think about good and bad and right and wrong? It's not just about arguing. It's about figuring out how to come to substantive conclusions about some of the most important questions we face every day. Yeah. And then, and to keep rethinking them, right? I mean, you never stop thinking about these issues. That's the point, right? Right. And it becomes harder and harder the older you get. I mean, I go back and read the same things, the same philosophers <laughs> again and again, and it's more and more difficult each time because you come at it with new questions. The things you hadn't noticed that were confusing before are now sticking out. So we always like to close our episodes with something that's both practical and positive, right? Our, our, our shtick is to say each week that there's something we can learn from history and the broader humanities that helps us to see a positive pathway for our democracy that we can all participate in. This is participatory democracy in a, in a sort of heady way. Uh, what, what do you hope? that the readers of your book, or at least those who listen to people talk about your book as they have now, what do you want them to do now? What's, what's the next step? I'd like to, to encourage them to not lose hope that all is not lost and that um, we can turn things around, but it ain't going to happen uh, without people getting engaged and involved. And part of our message in the book is that philosophy is not just a dry academic exercise but has serious practical implications. And, you know, it, you should, it, it, it should inform who you vote for and how you consider the issues and what you do in reaction to um, oppressive laws, for example, in your state, Jeremy, but also in our state here in Wisconsin. Um, the way to respond to these laws um, restricting our, our most natural rights over the use of our bodies is not by getting angry and sitting and stewing, but getting out there and making reasoned pleas for uh, changing things. Here, here, uh, Larry, your thoughts? I, I think um, looking at our book in the sort of broadest possible way, abstracting away from some of its content, it, it should come as, I hope, good news to people that we are not in a post-truth world, or we shouldn't be in a post-truth world, just to, to bring this conversation back to earlier talking points. Um, what we learn from philosophy is that there are means that are better suited to finding the truth than other means. And philosophy provides you with the tools for finding truth or for finding the best justified beliefs. This should come as welcome news, even to those people who end up with beliefs that by philosophical standards are not justified because at least they then know that there's some better belief out there. Uh, if, if you give up on the idea of truth and you give up on the idea of reason, you don't have that kind of comfort. 
I, I really liked uh, one of your closing paragraphs in the conclusion titled Thinking Responsibly, which I think is what both of you are talking about. I thought I'd just read a few lines from that. There is an antidote for bad thinking. That's the good news, right? A way to mitigate yeah. its effects and even prevent it altogether. It lies in the right kind of education, a kind of emendation of the intellect. This is from this guy, Steve. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, Spinoza, by the way, uh, through philosophy and more generally the humanities. Phil- philosophy, as we have shown, teaches the canons of good thinking. That is proper reasoning and the epistemic, moral, and even political benefits of forming and holding beliefs in a rational manner. And I, and I think you guys uh, display that very well in, in, in the book. Zachary, listening to this, uh, as you listen to our conversations every week, uh, is this persuasive to you? Is this, is, is this approach to philosophy, you think, a, a way out of uh, the ditch that we're in? Yes, I, 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 I am often struck by the, um, by, by the way that my generation likes to challenge ideas and, and is often unwilling, uh, unfortunately, to accept ideas, uh, the conventions of truth or reason. Uh, but I, I'm also struck every day by how my peers and I, are, how, how much we engage with material uh, like Kant, Aristotle, Plato, and Dante, all of which I've had the privilege to read in high school. Um, shout out to my English teachers and philosophy <laughs> teachers. Um, you guys are amazing. Um, I think that, that that every day that young people get to interact with these texts, even if it's only for a little bit, um, can have such an impact on how we think and how we view the world. And so that that's a great comment, Zachary, and very helpful. So Steve and Larry, I was going to close then with this final question. What's the one thing that after our listeners read your book, you would want them to read? I say go out and read Plato's dialogues with Socrates, the Apology. I mean, that's where it all begins. That's where Socrates famously says, the examined life is not worth living and explains to you what an examined life is. It's a, it's a very accessible dialogue. It's not hard to read at all. And it'll spur you to think about what it is we're doing here. That's so, so I, I agree a hundred percent and I, I'm not, I don't have the expertise you have, but it, it, I've probably read it three times and it's certainly moved me every time. Larry. Uh, I would, I would love people to uh, read some essay by John Rawls, who was um, one of the greatest political philosophers of the last few hundred years, uh, died not too long ago and uh, developed a, just a magisterial theory of justice that uh, I, I think has um, lots of application to uh, the, the problems in the world today. If I, if I might add, you know, you don't have to read philosophers. Philosophy can seem somewhat forbidding, but some of our greatest novelists raise these philosophical questions. If you read uh, Jane Austen's Emma, um, you can't help but be confronted with the question of what it is to know yourself, to know what your desires are and what other people's character is like. Right, right, or or Shakespeare for that, or matter, Shakespeare, right? yeah, yeah, no, the very well said, and and uh, you, you couldn't see this, Larry, but Zachary was was very excited when you mentioned Rawls and the theory of justice. Ah, and, uh, good, and, and and Rawls is also wonderful with his labels, labels, right? The difference prin- principle, right? The veil of <laughs> right. ignorance, right? He he understood how to you know how to get a soundbite out, as philosophical as he was, right? Yeah, that's true. He was he was good with the soundbites, but most of his writing is is pretty. Uh, dense. Uh, so it, it, it takes some, some help 
to get through Rawls, right. I think. Yeah, he has a wonderful essay that I love on the law of the peoples, right? I guess it's a short book, right? But really applying his theory of justice to international affairs, which is, is even harder yes. in some ways. I want to thank both of you, uh, Steve Nadler and Larry Shapiro. This has really been a fun conversation, so rich, and I hope it gives our, our listeners a taste of how worthwhile this book is. It's a short book. It's filled with lots and lots of great ideas, and it's easy to read. But that doesn't mean it's an easy book, right? It's a book that really stimulates a lot of important thought. And I'm so glad you've been able to share a little bit of it with us. So thank you for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having us. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for your poem, uh, Zachary, is all. And thank you most of all to our listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.